Chapter 4, everybody. Chapter 4. Yeah, I know. I'm already starting to get sentimental like this is going by too fast. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, guys. Um, there's one there's one little glitch in our whole uh, order of service remodel thing that, that I needed to think about ahead of time. Um, the meet and greet... Hate to say it, used to be my bathroom time. <laughs> right before the service, man. That was, no, okay, right before I'm preaching, I'm going, I got my bathroom break. I'm ready to go now. Now I don't have that time, guys. I'm going to have to figure that out some other some other way. Um, too much information, I'm aware. My name's Nick. Uh, I am uh, the lead pastor here. Believe it or not. If you want to open up your Bible, uh, chapter four of Luke's Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We've got a couple good-looking men that will bring you, bring you the Scriptures. So feel free to keep it, give it away if you want. But we are in Luke, chapter 4. We're going to read verse 1 all the way down to verse 13. This stuff is amazing, guys. I mean, I was. Sometimes it really strikes me the privilege that it is um, to get to sit in the scriptures uh, for a whole week and kind of, you know, chew on things for you all. And this is one of those texts. This was one of those weeks. It was just like, wow. So I, I look forward to the next couple of weeks, at least. Let's read it. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. said to him, To you I will give all this authority and all their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And He took Him to Jerusalem and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to Him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Before I pray this morning, I wanted to open actually with a few thoughts um, that might 
help answer by the time I'm done um, the question, why do I even begin my preaching with prayer? So instead of opening with prayer here for a moment, I want to think with you about something and then we'll pray together. We live in a post-enlightenment world, right? Where man's reason now is the arbiter of all truth. And things have gone from uh, uh, sp- you know, seeing spiritual reality to all physical, all natural, right? Where it's no longer kind of this, oh, pre-enlightenment, pre-modern, superstitious kind of religious stuff. It's now, you know, man and science and, 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 and use, flexing our strength and our intelligence to, to fix what's wrong with the world. Christians like us sitting in this room who still believe, I hope, in things like the devil and things like demons and whatnot, it, we're considered in, in this world like, like people that believe in the boogeyman or Santa Claus, like grow up. That stuff is, we're beyond that now. Modern man knows better. What are you doing still talking about the devil? As we touched on last week, our problems are now all horizontally, naturally, physically understood. So it's your upbringing that causes you the problems you have. It's your education. It's your diet. It's it's your, your 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 brain chemistry. These are the things that are the big issue. Don't blame it on Satan. Come on. Certainly, the issue is not spiritual. But the world of the Bible, and hence the world as it truly is, is unapologetically supernatural and spiritual at its very core. At the core of the biblical worldview is, is this spiritual reality. In fact, the Bible presents, it presents this spiritual reality that stands behind all physical reality. The physical realities that so often consume all of our attention. The Bible says there is more behind that. In fact, there is something even more real behind that. I think it's Paul, I can't remember, who, who says, listen, all, everything you can see, transitory, Live for the real stuff that you grasp by faith that goes behind the veil of the created world and gets to the eternal, the spiritual. But we get so caught up in the physical, right? We don't even realize sometimes what's going on behind. This is the Bible's worldview here. Let me show you the, the reality behind the reality. When a husband and wife are turned away from one another in bed, steaming with resentment, and the sun is going down on their anger. Been there? The Bible says they are giving opportunity to the devil. Ephesians 4, 27. You thought it was just a horizontal conflict 
He said, she said. The Bible says the devil's in the bed with you in those moments. There's something behind it. Or when a young pastor becomes puffed up with conceit and exalts himself over his flock. We read, the Bible says, he's falling into the condemnation of the devil. 1 Timothy 3.6 That text there in 1 Timothy almost kept me from the ministry. Because I see the vanity in my own heart. And I don't want to fall to the condemnation of the devil. I'm aware there is a war going on in these moments for me. For you. When a gunman mows a hundred people to the ground in Orlando, killing 49 of them. It's a problem. Guns, gun control, walls around our border. Some of those issues are real. That's fine. The Bible says that the devil is in the mix there. Because he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. People are just acting like their father, the devil, when they kill one another. When trial, tribulation, persecution come upon you, the Bible says, Satan is often standing at hand. Demanding to sift you like wheat. Luke 22, 31. We thought it was just an issue with my boss or just an issue with my unbelieving neighbors who who don't like me because of my faith or whatever. Satan is in the mix, the Scriptures say. There's a war behind the war, a reality behind the reality. Last example I'll give you. When the gospel is faithfully proclaimed in the pulpits and on the street corners of our city, and people couldn't care less, just yawn or laugh. The Bible says it is the devil who comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Luke 8, 12. We thought we just needed better arguments or a better gospel tract or whatever it is. The Bible says there is a war going on for that person's soul and the devil is clinging with all of his might. The worldview of the Bible is unapologetically spiritual. And of course, if I were to put a capstone on this point, I think the clearest place we could go is to Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. Where it says this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul goes out of his way, you guys, to say, it's not flesh and blood. Christians, even throughout the centuries, have gotten this wrong. They start thinking that the war is, you know, you you get some of these people trying to convert even by the sword or make it a law or deal with the flesh and blood of the matter. And, 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 And Paul would look and say, it's not flesh and blood. There's a reality behind the reality. Your war is with the devil and his demonic host. That's where the fight is. It's not physical. Spiritual. So Paul looks at this situation and he concludes in Ephesians 6, 18 and 19 with this exhortation. We need to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We need to keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. And he ends by saying, please, this is the apostle now, please pray also for me. In light of the spiritual war, in light of the combat we are doing in this room right now with the devil, Paul says, you better pray. And you better not stop. Because this war... It's not going to be won with guns and grenades and bombs. It it can't get there. And this war is raging in this room. And therefore, therefore, I begin my preaching with prayer. Rational arguments won't carry the day in a world where Satan is blinding the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. I don't care how polished my sermon is, how theologically accurate it is, how great of a minister I am. I can't get through that if Jesus, His Spirit, doesn't come and move on us and me. So would you pray with me? Okay. Lord, this, this, this text in Luke has been so sobering for me and, and, and so awakening for me because these things are necessarily new, but because I'm so prone to forget. I'm so prone to naturalize everything, Lord, and make it about, you know, growing the church is about finding the next good book to read or technique or ploy to draw in the masses or mailer in the neighborhoods and And dealing with the problems of my own heart is about kind of a fix-it approach with this or that in my schedule or whatever it is. Jesus, 
there's, there's something deeper beyond all of that. And you're calling us to look there. You're calling us to fight there. And when we see that there, Lord, we know that we are helpless. If you don't come. And so, God, we're begging you now. We're begging you to come. We're begging you to come in those places where we've, we've kind of hardened our hearts, those places where Satan has even uh, blinded our eyes. God, we ask that you would take the blinders off. We ask that you would soften the hard hearts. We ask that you would come into this room and do abundantly more than we could think to even ask or imagine because you are God. You speak and worlds come into being. You speak in this room and chains fall off. People are healed. I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, the, the post-enlightenment man. I don't want to talk about spiritual stuff, but really not think that they're all that essential or real. Live like I'm, like I'm everybody, like, just like everybody else, Lord. I, I, I want to operate in the world that you created, in the world that you describe, in the world that we see in the scriptures. And therefore, I want to do battle in these moments with the devil. Jesus, would you come? Would you let this be an it is written moment for us? Do war on behalf of your people, Jesus. For your glory, for our good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, long introduction, I know. But, uh, nonetheless, kind of sets us up for the next couple of, of weeks. I assume that I'll be here probably for two more weeks after this. I don't know for sure, uh, but that's my sense of it because there's just so much here. I have no idea how I'm even going to convey all that I'm excited about in this text. <laughs> that's usually the biggest issue for me is how do I organize all this awesome stuff? I don't know. Jesus has come to face this reality behind all realities. That's what our text is showing us. And that's what is put plainly in, for, for example, 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You want a purpose statement for his life? There's one of them. Destroy the works of the devil. Think the devil is silly? Jesus didn't. That's why he came. Our text in Luke brings this uh, reality, brings this purpose immediately into the foreground of his ministry. We see it right away. He goes straight for the devil. Now, we're going to be, like I said, in this text for a couple of weeks. This morning, all I really think I'm going to be able to do is introduce the matter to us and maybe get into the first couple of verses. Okay? There's going to be a little bit more... Old Testament background coming in to, to, to set the scene. And we're going to make our way through these weeks towards more practical understanding of temptation and how we deal with it, things like that. But first, I just want to look at Jesus. And you'll see at the end why. So often we treat this, this text like a manual for spiritual warfare. Like we come in and go, okay, just do what Jesus did and I'll win too. And we forget he's doing what we could never do here. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to organize my thoughts under three headings. First, you'll see them there on your handout. A high calling. Second, a heart testing. And third, a holy church. We're going to spend most of our time in the second one there and uh, just come out on that third one at the very end. So first, a high calling. Uh, Before we move into our text 
proper for this morning, I actually just want to reconnect us for a moment with what's come before. Uh, in fact, I want to do this by pointing out something that I had overlooked begrudgingly uh, in weeks past, and now it's found its way back in. There's a little detail back up in verse 23 of Luke chapter 3. Right before uh, Luke begins his genealogy, there uh, he makes this little statement that is, I think, packed with implication and significance. So I want to look at it with you for a moment. It's going to kind of set us up as we move on into chapter 4. Verse 23 begins like this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. You read that, you go, oh, no big deal. Oh, I don't think Luke, I don't think Luke just kind of throws words out there that don't matter. So when he highlights 30 years of age... I sit there and I say to myself, why? Why say that? Does 30 years of age have any significance in Israel and the Old Testament? It's actually interesting. When you, when you look into it, you find that it does. You find that 30 was probably the age at which the prophet Ezekiel was called into ministry. That's Ezekiel 1.1. Hebrew's a little tough, but that's, that's the sense of it, probably referring to his age, 30. 30 was the age at which a male priest could begin his service in the temple. Jesus' ministry begins about 30 years of age. Numbers 4, 3 there, priest. 30 was the age at which David, that's a big one, began to reign in Israel. That's Second Samuel 5. Four. So if I'm not mistaken here, <laughs> what I am seeing is that the age of 30 connects Jesus to the three most significant offices within Israel, namely prophet, priest, and king. And even more interestingly, consider this. These three offices within Old Testament Israel were the offices where, where, where uh, oftentimes when an individual was installed into them, it would be accompanied by the anointing of or with oil. So these were kind of the anointed offices in the Old Testament, especially with the priests and the kings, but then you'd also see occasionally, like with Elisha, prophets being anointed as well. So there's, there's not only this threefold office, but this involves this anointing. Now, here's where I'm going with this. What immediately precedes Luke's discussion about Jesus' age? Jesus' baptism. By John, water, spirit. An event later referred to as Jesus' anointing. Acts 10, 38. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Spirit and with power. Jesus' baptism is equivalent to Jesus' anointing. At 30 years of age, we are now seeing Christ being shown to us as the true and final prophet, priest, and king. Quoting actually from the little booklet I gave away to some of the dads last Sunday. Let me read you this. 
Jesus is called the Christ. I wonder if you do this. Because Christ means anointed. And he was ordained by God and anointed by the Spirit at his baptism for his work as our prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is our mediator. He is our prophet to teach us. Our priest to sacrifice, intercede, and bless us. And our king to rule and guide us. And his very first act as this threefold office holder is what? It's going to be to stand for his people against the enemy of their souls, the devil. First act of this prophet, priest, and king stand against the devil for me and for you. Now, I'm just going to mention this in passing. Didn't see it in any commentaries. <laughs> Take it or leave it. I thought this was pretty awesome. <laughs> the three temptations Luke records, as we'll get into in weeks to come, they actually correspond quite profoundly with these three offices. It's amazing. There's this wilderness temptation, right? That's the first one you see. Bread. Where is he? He turns some bread. He's in the wilderness and he's hungry. He's with, he, he, he's, we'll see it. He's, he's with, he's kind of like where Israel was with Moses in the wilderness. And in this temptation, Jesus is showing himself to be the prophet greater than Moses. And then we move from there to a mountain temptation. This is the second one where Satan will show him in a moment all the kingdoms of the world. And as Jesus rejects that for his father, he is showing himself to be the king on the throne of David, David's greater son. And we move from there to a, what? Temple temptation. Takes him up to Jerusalem, to the temple. And there, Jesus will show himself to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have our our prophet here. We have our king. We have our priest. And he's flexing these offices against the devil on behalf of his people. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. The true and everlasting prophet, priest, and king has arrived at the end of the ages to enter into cosmic combat with the devil himself for our sake. Second heading then, you see a high calling, now a heart testing. Verses 1 and 2 is is where we're going to go for this. Jesus has, to this point, been conceived, and now we see anointed by the Holy Spirit. But as we come into verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 4, we now see that he is also filled by the Spirit. Okay? You read this in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. So, anointed, or I'm sorry, uh, conceived, anointed, now filled. And we think, oh man, this is good. This is good news. This is wonderful stuff. The Messiah, it's just going to be up for the Messiah from here. He is full of the Spirit. But as we keep reading, our optimism is shaken a bit. 
Because what do we see happens next in our text? This Jesus who has been conceived, anointed, and filled by the Holy Spirit is now led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Verse 1 and 2. You stand back, you go, wait a minute. Full of the Spirit, led into the wilderness, dealing with the devil, tempted, tested, tried. That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound fun. What's the Holy Spirit doing? Lead him to the throne in Jerusalem. Let's set this baby back up. Is it going to the wilderness with the devil? What's interesting is that we don't get any sense of reluctance from the Father, Son, or Spirit to do such a thing. We actually sense a sort of urgency. Mark's Gospel, it's amazing when you read this uh, account there, he puts it this way, the Spirit immediately drove him out, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. That's Mark 1.12. I mean, so the Spirit is thrusting Jesus out into the wilderness to face the devil at this point. Why? Bear with me. I know I've already answered some of these questions, but sit and think for a moment with me. I mean, that's jarring, right? You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Put the Spirit upon Him, fill Him up, and kick Him out into the wilderness. Why? The answer to this question is fundamentally related to the observations we made last week concerning Jesus' genealogy. I don't know if you remember. I said in in, in Jesus' genealogy there in Luke, Luke is tracing his, his origin back through David through Abraham, all the way to Adam. And he's doing that because it's as if God in Jesus is going back to the root of man's problem. He's pulling this thing up from the root. Things went wrong with Adam. So Jesus is God's answer to all that went wrong with Adam. That was our conclusion last week. And so then we come and we have to ask, well, how did things go wrong with Adam? If Jesus has come to be the answer to that, how did things go wrong? And this is where it starts to make sense, what we see here in Luke 4. In Luke 4 excuse me. What went wrong with Adam? Failed satanic temptation the devil came in to the garden sanctuary in Eden and Adam bowed down and humanity has been bowing ever since that's how things went wrong therefore It is only a natural transition 
to trace Jesus back to Adam and then thrust him into the wilderness to do combat with the devil that, that, that Adam acquiesced to. Does it make sense? So Jesus, the Son of God, traced all the way down to Adam, the Son of God. Now thrust Him out into the wilderness so we can show this Son of God superior to this Son of God. And He is going to make a new humanity and we're going to start back at the beginning. Jesus, if He is to save us, must both do what Adam failed to do and undo what Adam did. Therefore, He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. We go on to read in verse 2 that He ate nothing during these 40 days. Now, there are two levels of connection here to the Old Testament. Both are significant. I said this was going to be largely going back here, giving us some, some, some background contours to understand what Jesus is doing. We'll make our way in the future to more practical stuff. So bear with me. But let's just glory in our Savior and our mediator and our prophet, priest, and king for a moment. He ate nothing during those 40 days. There are two levels of connection that I am seeing here and I think God wants us to to make. On one level, (coughs) the 40-day fast here is probably meant to set Jesus in connection with two Old Testament figures that also had 40-day wilderness fasts. If you know who they are, probably not. Maybe Moses and Elijah. Both of them fasting 40 days in the wilderness. And in each scenario, it involved Mount Sinai and the law and and the sort of prophetic intercession going on for the sake of God's people. I want to read you, I want to give you the example from Moses here, but what I want us to start seeing is that Jesus in the wilderness here is actually in the place of intercession. He's interceding for His people. That's what we start to see is going on. Let me read you an example from Moses and start to imagine, wow, Moses here is foreshadowing what I think Christ is probably doing in the wilderness for us. Here's an example from Moses. Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. And the people of God are down below doing what? Dancing around a golden calf worshiping a false god. It didn't take them but a few days and they were straying, just like Adam did. Moses recalls what he does in response to this, what he did in response to this as we read this here in Deuteronomy 9. We read it. You can just listen. Deuteronomy 9. uh, I'm going to start in verse 18 and kind of pick out some pieces for you. He says this, I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed. He's speaking to Israel here. In doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke Him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that He was ready to destroy you. 
And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that He promised them, and because He hated them, He's brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And Moses would say earlier, God listened to my prayer. Moses puts himself in the place of death, lying prostrate before the Lord. Forty days, no food, no water. He is interceding for His people in the wilderness. That's what's going on. And so when when we're told that Jesus is fasting 40 days in the wilderness, you better believe He's doing that sort of thing for us. He's not in the wilderness to prove Himself. He already had glory with the Father before the world was. He's in the wilderness for us, to intercede for us. That's what He's doing there. And He's praying, I imagine, on behalf of uh, for us to the Father. Let's deal with their sin. Let's do something here. Let's reverse the fall. Let's, let's, let's undo the curse. Turn from your anger. Be true to your covenant and grace. It's one level. 40 years connects us back to. There's another one, I think. I think the 40 years are also meant to align with, or I'm sorry, 40 days in the wilderness of Jesus are, are meant to align with Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It becomes clearer as we go, almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this is in, 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 intentional here. But we remember that it was because of Israel's faithlessness that they had to wander 40 years. I mean, they, they could have been there <laughs> like a few days into this journey. But they turned against God. They didn't trust God. They didn't think He was powerful enough to get them in. And so God said, 40 years it is until that faithless generation dies in the wilderness. As with Adam, they were tested in the wilderness and they failed. So now here, Jesus is brought out into the wilderness for 40 days. And and here's what's crazy about this. If you read the text, it's as if Jesus is going in reverse. If you notice this, He he is retracing Israel's story here, going back. Just like he kind of did with Adam, now he's doing it with Israel as well. Where Israel did what? What was their historical movement? It was from wilderness, through Jordan, into promised land. Now Jesus is going from land, through Jordan, into wilderness. We're like, Jesus, you're going backwards here. You're going the wrong way. What are you doing going that way? Well, same thing he's doing with Adam. 
He's going to come and stand where his people fell. He's going to right things where they went wrong. If he's to save us, he's got to both do what Israel failed to do and undo what Israel did. And if there's any doubt that this sort of connection is being made in our text, all we have to do is look closely at how Jesus fights the devil in these temptations. Three quotations... It is written, it is written, it is said. Three quotations from Old Testament Scripture Jesus gives in combat with the enemy. And all three quotations come from one book. Namely, Deuteronomy. The book which contains the words Moses delivered to Israel on the wilderness side of Jordan River's banks. Right before entering into the land. Jesus is quoting there, quoting there, (laughs) when they were in the wilderness, when they were about ready to enter the promised land. It's as if he's saying, I am the new Israel. I am the faithful son. I'm not going to fall where they fell. I am the mediator, the prophet, the priest, the king that Israel was supposed to be and they weren't. Adam was supposed to be and he wasn't. And I'm going to be the one who will lead my people into the true and eternal promised land of God's presence. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Pretty awesome. And the last part of verse 2, this is going to, where I'll end um, this second heading and I'll bring us on into uh, the third part here in a moment. But in the last part of verse 2, we read that when the 40 days of fasting were ended, he was hungry. (laughs) When I read that, I was like, are you serious? He was hungry. When When he didn't eat for 40 days, he was a little hungry. I thought, man, this is one of the biggest understatements in all the Bible. Probably the biggest is calling the gospel good news. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is called good news? I'm like, this is like the greatest news the world has ever known. Calling that good news almost seems blasphemous to me. Like good news is, you know, the Warriors won the playoffs, which they didn't, but. I, I, yeah, I'm new to this city, so I, I have nothing, no skin in the game. But that would be good news. The greatest news the world has ever heard? Jesus rose from the dead, died for sinners, and you were free. That's probably the biggest understatement. This might be the second in the Bible. Jesus fasted 40 days and he was hungry. 40 days without food puts you on the doorstep of death. There's a reason again. There's a reason again why Luke mentions hunger. Why he even includes this seemingly... We we all know he was hungry. Why include this? I wonder if you remember how Adam and Israel were tempted by the devil. Do you remember their temptations? Do you remember where they fell? It was trial by 
food. Both of them. Trial by food. And food is, I mean, it's a picture of the appetites of the flesh. I just want something to fill me and God's not enough. You got that in you? I got it in me sometimes. Trial by food took down Adam, took down Israel. It's not going to take down Jesus. But let me show you this. With Adam, it was the fruit from the forbidden tree, right? Where, where Eve and he look at this, this fruit and he says, at this tree and he says, look, it's, it's good for food. That's Genesis 3.6. This tree is good for food. I want to eat. With Israel, you remember this? They were freed from slavery in Egypt by the, the blood sacrifice of the Passover lamb. They, they walked through the Red Sea on dry, ga- dry ground into the wilderness of testing. But before they realize they're in the wilderness of testing, they're stoked. Exodus 15 is just one big song to the Lord praising Him for His redemption of them. But then you, you turn to Exodus 16, and, and it's, it's all out rebellion. And they're grumbling. You saved us yet! Not for this. Oh no, not for this. Wilderness? They're in all out rebellion. And you want to know why? They're hungry. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Exodus 16, 2 through 3. I remember the meat pots. I don't remember bringing the meat to my mouth with chains around my hands. I remember the meat pots. Now I'm hungry. God, you have turned on us. We'd rather be with Pharaoh in Egypt. Hunger, trial by food. That's where Adam, Israel, and everyone ultimately has fallen. The appetites of the flesh. God, you're not enough. I'm going to dig this broken cistern out. Or this one over here, or this one. Hence, it will be with food and hunger in the wilderness that the Messiah must be tested first. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Luke 4.3 Why would God, your Father, if He loves you, let you be this hungry, do this to you, You have the power, right? It's within your grasp, within your reach, to take from that tree, to turn stoned bread, to satisfy your appetites on your own terms and your own timing. 
We will look much more at Christ's responses to all this stuff next time. But for now, all we need to see is that the Messiah (laughs) looks the devil in the eyes here and says with cataclysmic effect, No. No. What we need to understand is that this is the first time a man has ever truly looked the devil in the face and said, No. Thousands upon thousands of years of yeses since Adam. And finally, the devil starts to get a little pushback. He's starting to squirm here. And he should. Because Jesus is going to hold his no firm to the end. Luke 4.13 talks about the devil departing from him until an opportune time. We'll go a lot more into that later, I assume. But just know this, that opportune time is at the crucifixion. And, And Satan is there with everything he has to call the Christ away from the cross. If you're the Son, come down. Where's your Father now? The angels, they're on your side, right? They won't let you get hurt. Call them down. Jesus still stands resolutely against the devil to the very end, even as He's hanging there on the cross. No. He is the true and everlasting prophet priest and king, our mediator who has come to bring us back to God. And in His no, for once, finally, there is the possibility for man's allegiances to to be broken with the devil. It's as if in those moments that the, the, the chain that bound our nature inextricably to Satan snapped with His no, To the end. He makes a way for us. Back to the Father. And into the freedom of the children of God. Now, I'm going to end with the Holy Church. Just a few reflections for us. Because I know that Satan is, is still hounding at us. I, you, know, you read it in Revelation and things. And he knows his time is short, so he's come to make war on the saints. So I'm aware. And I mean, Peter talks about him prowling around like a lion. Paul in Ephesians 6. All this is happening after the cross. So it's still, it's, it, you hear theologians and perhaps pastors talk about the already and not yet. Jesus has already overcome the devil, but He's not yet put the last enemy under His feet. He's not yet taken up His full throne and set it on the earth. There's still war going on. And so I know Satan is hounding some of you in this room, all of us in one way or another. 
And I know that there are things in your life that you are struggling to say no to in this very moment. Ways that it's like, oh, that looks better to me over there. I want to go back to Egypt. I want what God says I can't have. Something in the flesh just still has ears for the devil's advances. And we struggle to say no. We might see Jesus here in our text and find it all so inspirational. Okay? This is what I was saying at the very beginning. Why I spent so much time on background. It's all going to pay off right here for a moment, I hope. <laughs> we might look at, at, at Jesus here and say, oh, what an inspiration. Now I see kind of what I'm supposed to do in this, in this spiritual war. We kind of read these verses as if we're reading a manual for spiritual warfare. Okay, I do what Jesus did, and then it'll go good for me. Jesus is my example here. It's true. But, if that is the first place we go with this text, we've missed it entirely, and we doom ourselves to failure. We've missed the point, the reason why I spent so much time on Adam and Israel and all of humanity before and setting Jesus apart is to say, the whole point of what Jesus is doing here is to stand where no man ever has, ever could. We couldn't do it. God comes in the flesh and stands as our prophet, priest, king, mediator in our place. That's the point first of this text. He is doing what Adam Israel, no one could do. It's not first a manual. Memorize some scripture and and, and you'll be able to combat the devil. You need Jesus or you have nothing. That's the bottom line. Before Jesus is our example, he must be our Savior. Before we can follow after Him, we must fall before Him. Does that make sense? I can't do it, Lord. I can't just take a few verses and and defeat this enemy. Only you can. Only you have. Only you can start to do it in me now. It's only when we are brought into Jesus... And He into us that our allegiance is broken with the devil. And we can start to say no to those things that just, yes, 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 for years. Returning to a few of those examples of spiritual warfare I gave at the beginning. This is where I'll close. When you're in bed and everything in you wants to turn from your spouse in anger. Just forget about him. can't believe what she, he would do to me. Let the sun go down. Because of Christ in you, you're not going to be okay with that. We can grieve the Spirit. It's true. Christ won't let you stay there. Christ in you means you will be able to look at the devil in those moments, firm the eye, say no.
And even though it feels like it's killing your flesh, and it is, you're going to turn back over, reach to your, reach to your wife, your, your husband, grab hand and apologize for your part in the conflict, and you're going to send the devil screaming. When Satan comes to sift you like wheat, and you feel like you're just up to your neck in in, in suffering and trials and pain, like I'm going to drown in my own tears here. And Satan comes and where is your father at? I thought you were adopted in him. Where is he now? Because of Christ in you, in those moments, you will be able to look the devil straight in the eye and say, No! I will not grumble against my Father. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Wherever this goes, it's good for me. I watched it play out with my Savior. He's going to play it out again with me. The devil has lost his hold on us. I don't know, whatever it is for you in Christ, you are no longer a slave in Christ. You can say no. Will you struggle and stumble in the flesh? Yes. But will you finally fail and fall in the end? No. That's the point of Jesus in the wilderness. Standing for His people. Those whom He grabs a hold of. Those who have grabbed a hold of Him. We read this to you. Just hear this over your life. 1 John 4.4 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Christ in you, hope of glory, baby. That's it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Perhaps that's a, one of the greatest understatements as well, is just to get done with that and say thank you. <laughs> Should be on our faces if we saw what You've done for us and the, the new future You have planned for us, the new possibilities You have made for us, the freedom that we enjoy now as Your children, from slavery, the tyranny of the devil brought into Your reign of peace, You are, you are an incredible prophet, priest, and king. God, we give You our hearts, we give You our lives. We ask You for Your power, knowing that our own power is of no avail. Thank You for snapping our allegiances and bringing us home. In Jesus' name, Amen.